Awesome. 42, 43 of Genesis. We're flying, guys. Come on, yeah. Cameron's homesick today. Maybe watching live stream. Uh, we'll see how sick he is. Uh, but uh, he did a great job last week of, of you know, unpacking kind of the dream sequence uh, as Pharaoh has dreams, the, the, uh, the, the rise of Joseph, if you will, out of prison to Pharaoh's right hand. Uh, and uh, so we have some interesting chapters today. We'll look at 42 and 43. Uh, if we had longer attention spans, we'd probably squeeze in 44 as well. But we'll look at just those two today. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I'll read them myself. So I was tempted to get Michelle to come up and read them. <laughs> you guys know this long. We'll look at this. Hopefully you understand where we are. Yep. Verse 57 of the previous verse summarizes it in case you don't. All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from everywhere because the famine was severe everywhere. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, like a loving father, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? Continue, I heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, but there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was governor of all the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them, where do you come from, he asked. For the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see our way, where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, You have come to see where our land is unprotected. They replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. Youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother, we saw how distressed he was when, we pleaded, when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. We would reply, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But they came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. 
After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brother. Here, here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. They said, the man who was lord of the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But he said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We were twelve brothers, son of one father, one is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was lord over the land said to us, this is how I would know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers, you and me, and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack with his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, if if harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain that had been brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because what the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us, Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know? He would say, Bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before him here before you, I will, the bear, I, will I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you and you, must not and you must return the silver that was put back in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare a meal there to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. 
So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver the exact weight in the mouth of the sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your younger brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by themselves, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other, they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Amen. Great story. Right? That's about our whole sermon time right there. You wish. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig a little bit into this text here. Father, we uh, thank you, you know, for what we've been learning over the last month uh, or 11 about, about Genesis, about the patriarchs. And, you know, obviously they are deeply flawed characters just as we are. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the reassurance, uh, even the reminder of our own humanity that that brings. And, uh, and Father, as we, as we look here you know, at a story that, that, that moves us with just the grand providence that you have, the sovereignty you have, how you arrange times and places controlling nations and disasters to bring about your will. We pray, God, you help us to be a people that in view of who you are and how you move and how you act and, and what your will is, God, you can help us to live lives uh, that work in harmony with that purpose, that work in harmony with your goal. Help us in all these things, God. Equip us. Uh, fill us with your spirit. May it truly open up the eyes of our hearts, God, so that we can see with eyes that actually see, to perceive and understand ourselves and you how we should. Again, we thank you for the grace and mercy you brought us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. They're incredible stories. I mean, I, I really, I hope you genuinely believe that as we've gone through Genesis, uh, that you've been moved and, and inspired, uh, you know, by, by how, the, how the patriarchs live, but, but even more importantly, how God operates. You know, and, and the Joseph story is, you know, second to none, really. I mean, it, it occupies such a huge portion of, of the story of Genesis, and, and for good reason. There's so much in it to, to squeeze out, uh, and, there, and there's so many things to consider, you know. And as we, as we look at it today, you know, there's some interesting things. 
And Cam touched on this concept last time when he preached, and, and, and we're even reminded of it, uh, you know, obviously from the previous chapters, but man, there's a famine, and the famine is affecting the entire known world at that time, and God knew it was going to happen, and did not stop it. Now that, that action by God is often for many people in our world a stumbling block. Right? You've probably heard it before, maybe when you're talking to people about God. Right? Why would a loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God allow tragedy to happen? Why would He permit it? And this text does, in many ways, raise that question and remind us of that question. You know, why would God allow that to happen? Why would God permit uh, you know, this disaster to, to, to come on uh, the, the, these people? You know, and we're faced with that question. And that's a good, you know, in some sense it's a good question, but it's a question that we need to be careful with. Right? If you've been through tragedy in life or hardships in, tra in life, that why question, why does God allow it, is one that can haunt you deeply. I know for me personally, it's one I've wrestled with at various times in my life of why. Why does God allow it? You know, and the caution comes to us in a variety of ways. One is from Paul, right, in Romans 9. And Paul is essentially echoing the same words of Isaiah when he poses the question of, can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Can the pot that's been made say to that which has made him, the potter, you know nothing? And we've got to step back and, and, and have, a, have a little, uh, you know, slice of humble pie, if you will, when we begin to think about, okay, why does God allow suffering? Because even oftentimes how we phrase the question, it betrays uh, ourselves, right? Because we phrase it of how could a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God allow that to happen? Well, one, you are not really that loving. We are definitely not all-knowing. And for sure, none of us are all-powerful. So even the question itself does actually try to help us to see, you know what, hold on, we're, we're dealing with different categories yeah. of existence. The God's existence is far greater than us. I mean, you would hope if He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving creator of the universe, that His decisions and choices would actually not line up with ours. But there's actually some goodness to that reality. And oftentimes, I think we try to sit in God's. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we begin to really struggle with these questions. But the Joseph story answers that question resoundingly. And it does it a couple times. You know, in the chapters to come, you know, uh, he, he will say this to us, right? Genesis 45. Joseph himself will tell his brothers, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And of course, the, the, the pinnacle moment there at the end of Genesis which Jack called dibs on in the beginning. Right? That chapter, he gets to preach on that, and he's still working on it. I'm stealing all your points, by the way, Jack. Right? But there in verse 20 of chapter 50, he tells us, right? You, would, you know what you, what you did, brothers? You intended to harm me, but God has intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. You know, as we go through these chapters today, and the chapters to come leading up to 50, you know, you cannot lose sight of that reality. Right? Why is God allowing a famine to come that he knew was going to come? Why doesn't he just stop it? He has a purpose. And that purpose is clearly spelled out in Scripture time and time again. It's all about salvation. 
And not just salvation physically, it's salvation spiritually. It's, it's the grander plan that God has to save people, to save mankind. You know, as we look at this text today, what we're going to see is how God kind of gets into the nitty-gritty details of how He brings about salvation. Not just providing grain, providing ground for repentance. Amen? And so let's look at this a little bit closer. Well, I kind of poked fun at it when I began reading it. Uh, how Jacob speaks to his sons there in 42 verse 1 is kind of like, come on guys, what are you doing? There's an annoyance in his, in his voice as he sends them off to Egypt to get grain. And even in many times, you know, a few times in, 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 in uh, this story, you know, there, there seems to be an element that Joseph knows, or that Jacob, Israel, knows that the brothers have been to blame for Joseph. Right? Even when they come back without Simeon, he says, you've already deprived me of my other son, now you've de deprived me also of Simeon. So there's an element of, he knows his sons are a little bit of mischievous character. Right? Now, when, when you do think about this group, and we have talked about it, I mean, these guys are the patriarchs of Israel, right? But what kind of guys are they? They're not like morally upstanding people. I mean, they tell Joseph, hey, we're honest men. <laughs> I mean, how does Joseph keep a straight face when they say that? <laughs> right? I mean, Simeon and Levi slaughtered people exactly. using circumcision to bring about that genocide. We're honest men, though, Joseph. Yeah, right. I mean, Reuben looks good at times, but, I mean, what's Reuben been up to? I mean, Reuben committed great insubordination, had an you know, ancestral relationship with one of his father's talking. I mean, it's, it's messy. I mean, Judah? We talked about Judah the other week. I mean, Judah's life's a mess, right? I mean, he married a non, you know, outside of the faith. Uh, you know, slept with a prostitute only later on to discover that was his daughter-in-law. And that's not even, I mean, you know, the whole lot, I mean, Reuben does try to step himself back on it, but the whole lot was involved in just envying Joseph's favoritism, thinking about killing him, realizing that's not super profitable, let's sell him into slavery. Right? I mean, what kind of guys are these? These are sinners. Now, what's God's purpose in all this famine and all this orchestrating that's going to happen? It's to bring about salvation. The prerequisite for salvation is sin. Anyone in here fulfilled that prerequisite? The answer should be yes. Okay? I, know it's, I know it's like a five-day weekend or something for us. Uh, you know, but, but it's yes. And that's comforting. It's comforting to know. I mean, how many of you Committed genocide. Hopefully you don't raise your hand. Good on that. You're with me. Okay. You know, I mean, none of us have done that. You think, okay, good. But, but these guys have, and yet still, despite that, what is God doing? He is working in orchestrated events to bring about salvation. To bring about salvation. To, to shift the, the, the condition of their heart so that they have the opportunity to repent and turn to God. Now, how God does it, and how Joseph orchestrates it, is not how many of us would like it to be done. I mean, many of us would hope that, you know what, okay, there's a famine, that's really hard, the brothers go to, to Egypt, 
They arrive, they recognize Joseph, he recognizes them. Sorry about the slavery thing, no worries, mates. And it's just kind of like happily ever after. I mean, Joseph recognizes. He sees. He has clarity right from the get-go. He sees who's there. Now, of course, you know, ten guys with big beards uh, from the land of Canaan would have stood out in that time in Egypt. But nonetheless, he, he could see who they were. And yet he doesn't do that. He doesn't just, you know, lift up the, proverb- the proverbial rug and sweep all the mess underneath it. He doesn't just tell them right from the get-go, hey, I forgive you guys. No worries, let's move on. God is going to use Joseph over the coming chapters to draw it out, help them to face what they've done, help them to connect with the severity of the pain and suffering they've caused. And to humble their hearts. It's going to be a painful process for them. But it's going to ultimately lead to repentance. They've got to endure the process. Now one of the ways that Joseph's going to do that is in some sense to give them a taste of their own medicine. To, to, to put them in the scenario that they put him in. To put them in, in, in positions or even doing actions that, you know what, they had, had they, that's going to force them to look back at. Right? And the text is littered with that. Right? Consider these few examples. Right? The only solution to the, to the famine that they're experiencing is to be found in Egypt. The only solution to their problem is in Egypt, which was the solution that they thought would be for their problem, Joseph. They arrive there, he speaks harshly to them, won't even, say a, won't even say a kind word to them. Remember when Joseph came out in his flash coat? How did the brothers speak to him? Couldn't even say a kind word to him. Spoke harshly to him. Right? Again, Joseph speaking to them as they had spoken to him. Right? They threw Joseph in a cistern. He chucks them in a prison. They were ticked at him not just because of the favoritism, but they thought he was leaking information back to dad. He repeatedly accuses them of being spies. It's over and over in the text, right? They had sold Joseph out for silver. And so he takes away Simeon and gives them silver and puts them in a scenario where they're again faced with a choice. Abandon a brother, gain some cash. Which are we going to do? They had to return to their father without Joseph once. And now they've got to return to their father without Simeon. And to see the pain that that would cause their father. They had despised and envied their father's previous favor in Joseph. And now they're again confronted with their father saying things like, I can't live if I don't have Benjamin. I mean, that, that's a difficult thing to hear from your father. But yet again, they're having to hear that thought. You're faced with that reality. Lots of interesting things. And it could go on and on. I mean, remember when they sold him into slavery. The, the, there in 37 verse 25, that the camels that there were loaded with what? With spices, balm, and myrrh. What does Israel load up the sons with as he sends them back to Israel with Benjamin? Same things. I mean, there's so many things in this text where God and Joseph is basically putting the brothers through the ringer of re-experiencing some of the most painful moments in their life. You know, replaying for them in some sense the very sins they had committed. 
and forcing them to again replay the consequences of their actions over and over in their life. The famine, the distress that Joseph puts them through as he puts them through the ringer, the anxiety and all that that would cause, it's painful. But don't lose sight of why. Don't lose sight of really who's in charge here. It is God bringing about repentance. God helping them along the path to find salvation. He's doing that as He has always done. Through discipline. This is such a great passage that we all love in concept and hate in application. Uh, Hebrews 12, 10-11 God disciplines us for our good in order we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Remember this, these two chapters, even the next chapter, it's, it's pain. It's emotional pain they're doing. But it's purposeful. God is giving them an opportunity to produce that harvest of righteousness and peace. But there's a condition. If they're trained by it. Many people in life, everyone in life really, everyone goes through suffering. Everyone goes through hardship. Not everyone repents. Many people go through horrendous suffering, horrendous pain, and doesn't produce the repentance that God desires. You know, too often we're triggered by God's discipline, and we spiral in anxiety, we react with defensiveness, and we melt with pity. And I think from this text, we can learn how to be trained by God's discipline. Not true. The brothers, those sinful men, are tremendous examples for us in how they respond to two of the most powerful emotions that take root when we're enduring discipline. Guilt and fear. Guilt and fear. These are powerful things that, that play on our hearts. And they're two of the things that often dominate us in times like that. And here, the brothers are actually shining examples of how to navigate those things. So let's look a little bit closer to those and we'll end with some positive thoughts on God's mercy. Amen? Amen. Guilt. I mean, look at 42 again, there in verses 21 to 22. Right? The ESV is a little bit more helpful here than the NIV. You know, they, 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 they arrive there. They, they've been harshly spoken to by Joseph. They've been put in place as, as Hebrews. The idea of bowing down before an Egyptian is just, it'd be cringe for them than to spend, you know, three days in, 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 uh, in the jail. Uh, you know, and, and at this point here in 21 and 22, it says that then they said to each other, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sit against the boy, but he did not listen? So now, here comes a reckoning for his blood. It's an interesting little moment. I mean, verse 21 said, literally, they say to each other, yeah. you got ten guys looking at each other. And this is some, you know, 13 odd years after they had sold Joseph into slavery. 14 years. And what's finally coming out? What are they finally looking at? 
and acknowledging it's the truth. These guys have probably carried guilt for that entire period of time. I imagine that guilt had haunted them. Like when we looked at Judah more closely, perhaps it was one of the causes that drove Judah away from the family into the land of the foreigners. Guilt. And here, like I said, they're, they're tremendous examples. They feel, they, they're feeling that guilt. They're, again, reminded of that guilt. And what do they do? They turn to each other and they, they acknowledge the truth. They look at their, their, their situation, their plot in life, the circumstances, and they say, you know what? We deserve it. We know what we did. And they own it. Their response to guilt at this moment is phenomenal. Now how do we respond to guilt? I mean, do we do that? When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you, you, you pulled aside your brother or sister and just said, you know what, here's the truth of it. Here, here's, what, here's what I'm feeling guilty about. Here's what I did. Acknowledging that guilt. Exposing and uncovering sin. These guys finally do that. You know, but do we? So I think our day and age, our, our, our modern viewpoint that holds feelings and emotions to great height has ill-prepared us to deal with guilt. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to, how to get it out of our heart. We don't, have, we don't know how to vanquish it. We don't know where to turn. Uh, we often handle it completely incorrectly. That's why it's one of the topics we're going to cover in our midweek, our new midweek series, kind of covering a lot of the, the basics of being a Christian, is how do you, how do you navigate guilt? Because so much of our world, I mean, I did, I Googled this when I was studying this out, you know, and you guilt, you, you, you Google, how do you deal with guilt? And, and the, the most common things that come back to you are how do you deal with someone guilt tripping you? Which, that's not, the, that's not the problem. I mean, you can't be guilt-tripped, really, if you don't have guilt. Someone may amplify it, but the reality is they're not. We've got to each deal with what's in our own heart. But we don't. We don't. We deny it. I think this is probably what the brothers did for 10, 13 years. They never sat down and had a group talk, hey... Remember what we did to Joseph? That probably wasn't good. They didn't do it. It took them being brought to the cusp of death through a famine. And then to arrive in Egypt with the hope of being saved, oh, to be put through the ringer. And then thrown in jail. And only then did they begin to kind of melt a bit. Oh gosh. Maybe that's haunting us. But we don't do that. We deny it. We don't mention it. We shut our mouths. We ignore it and we hope it goes away, but it doesn't. It haunts us with insecurity. Insecurity is a funny thing. And I think a lot of times our insecurity, and I know I'm simplifying things here a little bit, but, but a lot of times I think our insecurities come from the fact that we've buried things we know about ourselves, but we won't talk about it. We won't bring it to the light. And so we carry it around and we kind of, we're always nervous it's going to come out or the, the, the truth is going to be found out. But it all stems from just denying the obvious reality of what's really going on. Other times we try to drown it. We catastrophize it. All right? It's not just that, hey, 
You know, <clears throat> I did this. I, I sold my brother into slavery. It becomes about your entire identity is wrapped up in it. Of I am this. I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm just the worst of all, of, of, the, of all the people in the world. And we, we begin to drown in it. And we become flooded with shame. But the shame is simply a byproduct of us trying to drown it. Did we make a bad choice today? Yes. But when we try to drown it with all these other negative thoughts, then we actually globalize something that was a local thing. Right. A lot of times we deflect it. He did this. She said this. Deflected it off on other people. I mean, that road ends with arrogance. Right? Instead of dealing with our own guilt, we try to deal with it through boasting. Trashing other people. Sometimes we distance uh, I had to do whatever because they said this. Uh, and this just ends with us becoming self-righteous. Uh, we need to deal with our own guilt. Judah eventually will get it. Chapter 44, look what Judah says. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. He sees it's God at work. He doesn't, they're done denying it. They're done trying to drown it. They're no longer deflecting it. They're no longer trying to distance themselves from it. They, they, they take the discipline that's coming their way and they allow God to uncover what they've covered. They allow it to be seen for what it really is. That's such a crucial step. I mean, if we really believe that, right? if we really believe that God is a loving God, that disciplines us for our own good, that has our best interests in mind, that his ultimate end goal with us is salvation. And we, and we feel that guilt, and man, we've got to know as Christians that that guilt is closely tied to the work of the Spirit, trying to pull us into the light. Why, why choose a course of action that ends with anything other than your sin being uncovered? All we do is lengthen the pain. All we do is make it these guys finally make a decision to allow it to run its course and convict them. They bring it to light. Now as they bring it to light and the distress heats up, fear comes in. Right? Fear comes in. That moment is they finally, okay, they get out of Egypt. They leave Simeon behind. They stop for the night. They open the bags and they see the silver. And this is what they say. Their hearts sank. And they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? This is the first time they mention God in the narrative. Joseph has mentioned God. Joseph has acknowledged that he fears God. And that's why he doesn't hold all of them in prison, only one. But it's in that moment when they realize, man, we're probably in a lot more trouble. There's a lot more distress coming. That there's greater discipline on the forefront. That fear enters their heart. But take note of where that fear is directed. It's not at Joseph. It's not at their circumstances. It's not people-oriented. 
They're seeing past all those things, and they are seeing God. And they fear God. And it's such a funny thing in the Bible, isn't it? Fear. Jesus doesn't eliminate fear by telling you simply, don't be afraid. Sometimes he does generally say that. But a lot of times it's, hey, you're fearing the wrong thing. You're afraid of people? What can a person do to you? A person, they may be able to take your life. But I'll tell you who you should fear. You should fear God. Who could not just take your life, but deal with your soul into hell. That's who you should fear. And fear properly placed is a key component of how we turn to God. And it's a natural byproduct of it flowing from a heart that has guilt. Because if you believe in God and you know, man, I'm guilty, then the next step naturally should be, man, before holy God, I cannot stand. But you know what, my lot in life, this may be challenging, but I probably deserve that. And I need to have a healthy fear of God. It's such a subtle but significant difference of where their fear is pointing. And again, it's a group discussion pointing at, hey, what is this that God has done? But that fear begins to produce change in them. You know, even as they go back to their father there in, in the end of 42 and into 43, you see a difference in these men. You already see little hints that, man, they're changing. They are being disciplined. They are being trained. That there are hints of righteousness beginning to emerge. And we talked about this when we looked at Judah and how Judah, the ringleader of self-centeredness, here is the one putting himself up. Let it all hang on me. If that's, if that's what's good, if it's going to go badly with Benjamin, I will bear the guilt of it. And as these guys get a handle on their guilt and get a handle on their fear, you begin to see transformation that happens. You know the great hymn we sing, right? By John Newton. Captures this component of fear, right? It's grace that teaches our hearts to fear. It is grace. The famine is grace. The discipline is grace. The distress caused by Joseph is grace. Amen. It's painful grace, but it's grace. It's grace because it's going to lead to salvation. And it will eventually, chapter 50, right? Relieve that fear. Begin to quell that fear. But that fear needs to run its course to bring about change. Right? And as the text closes, as our, as our section here closes out, we see mercy and peace begin to flood. Right? That's even what Hebrews 12 told us, right? That it produces that harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, jo Judah, Israel, as he, sorry, Israel, as he bids them for farewell and, and as they return back to Egypt, you know, look at his prayer there in chapter 44. <clears throat> his prayer there is, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, I am bereaved. I am bereaved. Right? You know, there's, there's you know, two, two things really to notice there. I mean, there's the submissive spirit of Israel. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Yeah. He's letting go. He's no longer trying to control. Right? But his prayer for the boys as they return is that God may grant them mercy. That God may grant them mercy. And we see that as they do return, that happens. 
Right? Mercy and peace come to them. I mean, the shock there in 43, 23, when they return back and they get brought to Joseph's house and they think they're going to be you know, uh, punished even more severely than... And to have the head of Joseph's household come and speak to them in their own native language. And for him to begin the sentence with peace. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks for you. I mean, that's an Egyptian saying it. That's an Egyptian reminding them, you know what, who's really at work here is God. That God has done this. That God has accomplished this. You know, even Joseph, when he comes in and he sees uh, Benjamin, it says, it says there in the text that, that, that he is overwhelmed with compassion. But it's actually the same Hebrew word that, that Israel used when he prayed for God's mercy. And Joseph himself is overwhelmed with this feeling of mercy as he sees Benjamin there, his own flesh and blood. You know, and then they have this great feast, and they're eating this great meal. But even in that great meal, there's still this, there's still this poking attack. Because they're all sitting there, 11 of them, having a meal with one of them separate. Which when they had chucked them in the cistern, what did the 11 of them do? sat and had a meal with Joseph separated. And you see that God, is, again, he's, he's still working on them. He's still disciplining them. He's still preparing them to help them to come in touch with what they've done, to, to use that guilt to come into the light, to allow that fear to run through their heart, to push them back to God. You know, and when we do that, man, we, we end up on the path of mercy and peace. And the appeal to us today is we've got to learn to be a people that trust God as our Father. Even if you had a bad father, you probably had someone in your life that when you were younger disciplined you, put you through pain, put you through hardship. And that's the appeal of Hebrews 12. And the, and the challenge for us is to seek God in that. But as we go through those difficult times, to be good stewards of our emotions when we go through that. Because so often and too often we feel guilt and we run. And we hide. And we bury. And we deflect. And we distance. Instead of doing what these guys begin to do. Acknowledge the guilt. Bring it to light. Allow it to be seen for what it is. Because the reality is that God we worship is a merciful God. He's a God who gives these men who are undeserving of second and third chances time and time again to repent. And God will do the same for us as well. Amen. Now let's have a prayer and then we'll stand and sing together one final song. You know, Father, we, we thank you for, for you know, this snapshot, God. And we know it must be so painful for those men to, you know, to have life and Joseph that you forced them to face so many reminders of their failings and how they have fallen short. Father, we, we, we you know, pray the scary prayer that you do the same for us. That you can discipline us all. That we can you know, see you as our Father, as sons and daughters, that we can welcome that discipline, that hardship in life. That when, when the difficult times, when the, you know, the times of famine or the times... Uh, of conflict and difficulty and distress when they come, God, 
we pray, God. We pray that you help us to navigate our guilt. To not be driven away from one another, to not be driven away from you, but instead to be drawn into the light, God. And to acknowledge guilt, to acknowledge our wrongdoing, Father. And Father, we pray help us with fear. We know you have not given us a spirit of uh, timidity, but a spirit of boldness and courage. Father, we know that, that so often fear does get a hold of us. And it can blind us and cause us to run and to hide, God. But we pray that our fear can be properly placed in you. Mm. And how much of our problems and, and, and challenges of life can be overcome if we simply see you as sovereign over all things. That we need not fear famines because it's you that is the God over the famine. We don't need to fear anything if we have that fear in you. Help us, God, in that pursuit. God, we do pray, you know, as we allow, you know, your discipline to train us, God, that we can experience that, that, that harvest of righteousness and that peace that only you can give. Help us to help one another, God, and to help the lost world to find you. In Christ's name we pray.